Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. So then I realized, enjoy the friggin' ride, you know, seriously. So I kept my eyes wide open, and I threw my hands in the air. And when we got off the ride, I looked and I asked his mom, what's his name? And she goes, Grant. I go, do you know I'm supposed to go to prison tomorrow? This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Every year, people from all over the country gather for the Soros Justice Fellowship Conference. Three days of meetings, conversations, and workshops. Scholars, journalists, attorneys, and advocates have been awarded Soros Justice Fellowships this year and in the past to work on projects that explore the criminal justice system in America. This year, seven of those fellows shared personal stories about their work and their lives. The night was hosted by Adam Colbreth, Program Officer of the Soros Justice Fellows Program. We're presenting three of those stories in this episode of Life of the Law. To hear all seven stories, visit lifeofthelaw.org. Now, join me for Live Law Detroit. The theme of the night, Transitions and Transformations. So, there are some folks within the fellowship community who've been doing the work for a long time, right? They've been in it for the long haul. They've showed a steady and consistent presence in the various fields that you've worked in. And their perspective is invaluable. Um, they've been working on the issues that you all care so much about, um, from the massive numbers of people who are behind bars to the immense barriers that folks face upon leaving prison or simply because they have some contact with the criminal justice system. Um, and mind you, they've been working on these issues before there may have even been a glimmer of hope, right? Um, that the concept, the notion of mass incarceration wasn't even part of our kind of common narrative. Um, before there was widespread attention and critique of the war on drugs, um, before anyone had heard the term of the new Jim Crow. These were folks who had been in the field doing the work. Um, and this first person who I'm gonna ask to come up and join us on the stage, straight from California, uh, Dolores Canales. So if we could just start out a moment with everybody closing their eyes. As you close your eyes, imagine a blindfold around your eyes. Embrace that darkness, because in the darkness is the only place you ever feel comfortable. In the darkness is the only place that you know you're where you're supposed to be, because in the darkness, there is no pain. And then on April 5th, 2001, you could open your eyes because that was the day of my last arrest and that was the day of my last drug use. <laughs> so, thank you. <laughs> and this is how dark my world was. When I did get arrested on April 5th, 2001, for numerous counts of drug possession and drug distribution. I was enrolled in Cypress College. I was taking counseling the family of the addicted person and drugs and alcohol in our society because I was gonna be a drug counselor. 
because I was going to save everybody else from the darkness that I had to endure. So when I got arrested, <clears throat> I immediately had a parole hold. And I sat in the county for eight months. And um, during this time, I realized that nothing was ever going to change if it didn't change. And so during this time, I started really dealing with me. And I asked my dad to bail me out when my parole hold lifted, and he agreed, which was really crazy because my dad had this weird thing about money. He liked it a lot, and he didn't like to lose it. So he had bailed me out at 18 years old, and I jumped bond, and he had never touched, he had never bailed me out again. My brother couldn't even believe it. He said, everybody knows why you're a flake. I don't know why dad's gonna bail you out. And um, so on December 4th, uh, my parole hold lifted, and then my dad started thinking maybe he shouldn't. But then by December 8th, he realized there's nowhere on the face of this earth where you can hide from me that I can't find you. So he decided to take that risk. So during this time, it was phenomenal. It was amazing. I was experiencing life as I never had before. <clears throat> but then on September 26, 2002, my lawyer called me in that I was going to have to go to court on September 30th to turn myself in for maybe up to 12 years. So I thought, okay, here we go. And my lawyer got upset with me. He said, why aren't you mad at me? Why aren't you cussing me out? Any other client would be cussing me out right now. And I said, you know, Mr. McBride, if I've only got four, four days left out here, I'm not going to spend them pissed off. I'm going to just keep on doing what I'm doing. So the night before I had to turn myself in, I got invited to Knott's Berry Farm, a special event, <clears throat> the Clippers event. And um, it's funny because I was afraid to get on the rides. My friends were like, come on. And I was like, no, I'm scared. I might die. And then I thought, well, at least I wouldn't have to go to prison, right? You know? So I started getting on the rides, but I was keeping my eyes closed really tight. And my friend Marcella, I remember she kept telling me, open your eyes. And I wouldn't. So we're on this ride, about the fourth ride, it was um, the ghost rider. And there was this little boy next to me with his mom, and I kept looking at him, and I thought, God, that kid's going to get on. Right when the ride gets there, the mom looks at me, and she says, I can't do this. Please take him. So, you know, of all people, I'm there with three other friends, and she looks at me. So I'm not wanting to show the little boy. So I said, okay, come on. So we sit in the ride. The bar starts to close, and he goes, uh, and I go, are you going to cry? And he goes, yeah. I go, you're going to make me cry, okay? I go, you're scared? He goes, yeah. I go, so am I. I said, don't cry, don't cry. So I said, okay, do you believe in God? He goes, yeah. I go, okay, close your eyes and say, I trust in God with all, all my might. I said, and don't open your eyes, whatever you do. And so he's like, okay, so we're holding on. And you could hear us both, right? I could hear him. And I'm like going, and the ride starts going, and I, and I, lose his little chant. I'm like, hey, I'm not hearing him. I'm like, oh, shoot, I'm going to have to open my eyes. So I look over at Grant, this kid that barely met the height requirement, and when I looked over at him, he had his eyes wide open and one hand thrown in the air, okay? And this is the night I'm supposed to go to prison, the night before I'm supposed to go to prison. So then I realized, enjoy the friggin' ride, you know, seriously. So I kept my eyes wide open, and I threw my hands in the air. And when we got off the ride, I looked and I asked his mom, what's his name? And she goes, Grant. I go, do you know I'm supposed to go to prison tomorrow? I said, and I feel like he was on the ride just for me, so I could know, just enjoy the journey. 
But what happened when I turned myself in, <laughs> yeah, right, it was too late. She had already sent him with me, <laughs> you know, no turning back, right? Um, but she did grab Grant and off they went. <laughs> but what happened when I turned myself in, it was like the veil was lifted. I saw the reality of what they were doing to us women, keeping us in cement and steel, keeping us in cages. And I saw most of all what we were doing to each other. You know, we'd have the parties, we'd get drunk and everybody would start fighting. So then I began organizing in prison. For instance, it was Ty's birthday. She was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole at 17. She was gonna be 30 years old and all she ever wanted was a roller skating party. So I said, how am I gonna get her roller skates? I thought about asking staff, but I honestly did want, didn't want anybody to lose their job. So I started looking at everything with wheels. One day at my job, I decided to take the wheels off the chair. And the chair's kind of wobbling, my boss comes in and looks, and it wasn't there wheels on that chair, you know? <laughs> We're all sitting there, me and the other girls. Nobody says a word, so of course I don't want anybody to ride the beef. So I said, well, I, I borrowed them. And he looked at me and he goes, am I gonna get him back? And I said, I don't know, but just trust me on this one, you know? So now I have my wheels, okay? And, and they're from one of those black chairs, it's the swivel ones. So I have my wheels and I think, okay, I got wheels, now what am I gonna do? How am I gonna make tie these roller states? And so I have my wheels and I'm walking across the yard and Gypsy and Sleepy see me. They said, what are you doing? I said, well, Ty's always wanted a roller skating party. She's sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. So we gotta make this happen. So they look at my wheels and they're like, let's send them to cabinet making. You know, we'll get them back there with the wood. And so then the vision just grew. People started getting involved. The next thing you know, we have somebody draw a backdrop of a skating rink. I'm stealing gloves from the staff office and blowing them up like balloons. You tie the fingers up, put a ribbon on it, and just hang them from the ceiling. We had us a party, right? But then I get Ty's roller skates. They came out beautiful. We put them on some black and white tennis shoes. I got a hold of chalk. I painted her shoelaces bright pink. And then on the, the side, because um, anybody that knew Ty knew she was sassy. So at that time, that song was on. I'm bossy. I'm sassy. So I said, okay, so in music notes, around the white part, I put that, I'm bossy, I'm sassy, with music notes around her, uh, her roller skates. And then here she is, we decided to have the party in front of 516. We hung the balloons, hung the backdrop, and then brought Ty to her party. I had the gift all wrapped in a basket, she couldn't see what it was. So, as we, um, as we go and, uh, she opens her gift and she sees her skates. Tears start rolling down her eyes. So then me and Babyface and Goldie, we get her, because she couldn't just stay, you know, skate off in the wild. You know, she, we had to hold her. <laughs> so and she puts on her skates and we held her as she roller skated around D-Yard in her skates. And I think of things like that, you know, and I think of these memories, but more than that though, I started realizing the sentences, you know, the young women, the women that shouldn't be in there, the women that might not ever get out. So when I came home, I started organizing, but on top of a full-time job. I just, I got involved with, um, uh, with the youth parole and with Prop 36 for three strikes, but still on top of a full-time job. 
But then, July 1st, 2011, prior to that, my son had written a letter that he was gonna be involved in a hunger strike and that he was not gonna eat until certain demands were met. Well, having been from CDC, I knew not one demand was gonna be met, that they would let them starve to death. But what I found most powerful in this letter was that he said all the groups had decided to join together. And um, that was one thing I could never comprehend in the women's prison, it, it's not quite like that. You know, that men have had to just instantly hate each other because that's just the way that it always was. So what they realized was as they came together, um, that was gonna empower them in this mission, and sure enough, it did. And so at that time, my son had only been in solitary confinement for 10 years. And I was now realizing that there was people that had been in solitary confinement for 30 and 40 years, and that if we didn't do something, he was gonna be the next one, being in there for 30 and 40 years, maybe before I died. And when I spoke, I used to say, I hope before I die, I could hold my son's hand. I hope before I die. Because my Nina that raised me and then raised my son through my own incarceration, she went to her death without ever getting that hug. She went to her death without ever having that human contact because of that separation of cement and steel and not just that, her health, her age, her finances kept her from being able to go and visit. So I know the impact that incarceration has on families. I know what the families endure. I know how they suffer. And I watch my Nina burn a candle every day, all day, and pray and believe that things would change. So I knew that they had to. So what I did was I became actively involved, and that's how I met many of you in here right now in this room that didn't know me from a can of paint but supported me and loved me and embraced me, even in all my wild ways. Sometimes I would blurt out things that weren't activist appropriate or whatever, you know? Sometimes I still called a convict a convict instead of a whatever the heck we say now. But, you know, the, but I do say the incarcerated community. I do try to be, you know, because, uh, you know, it, it's just it, that was instilled in me for so long. And, um, and so, but everybody loved me. Everybody saw in me that willingness to fight, that willingness to make a difference. So after three hunger strikes in the state of California, um, my son was let out of solitary confinement. Uh, his, yeah. It was actually um, December, it was Christmas weekend, uh, Christmas week of 2015. They were gonna send him from Pelican Bay to Susanville, which is high, to High Desert, which was just as far. So I immediately started calling Sacramento and telling them I felt it was retaliation because of some other lawsuits he was bringing forth. And um, the next thing I know, Sacramento's calling me, asking me where did I want him. So, so I was like, well, okay, you know, Salinas Valley, because I heard they had good programs there. And then I called the prison, and I used to, when I was in prison, I used to work um, the facility. I used to work the program office. So I know how to talk just like them. So I called the prison, and I said, yes, I'm wondering about Martinez here. Um, is he going to be transferred, or he will, will he be staying here? As he was on his journey, I was following him. They were telling me everything. And they were like, oh, no, he's not. He's just an overnight layover. He'll be at Salinas by tomorrow. So I was knowing what was going on with him. But then I got a phone call reassuring me 
that he was not going to be held in solitary at Salinas, that he was immediately going to get put in GP, and he spent Christmas Eve amongst other people. They had a spread, and they hooked it up. And for people that haven't been in, in prison, y'all need to get with somebody that can make a good spread sometime, for real, though, OK? Because <laughs> you haven't tasted no food like prison food. Because <laughs> it's meant with a whole lot of love, because we don't have too much else to put in it. <laughs> so, but during this time, as I became this advocate and having this voice, and I used to go around like this when I was in prison. When I was in prison, when I turned myself in with 18 months sobriety, I used to say, I want a chrono on my good behavior. Don't worry, I'll write it. All you have to do is sign it. So I would write, I have so many chronos. And I mean, they're like, you know, she's reliable, dependable, honest, but I wrote them all. But, <laughs> but it's okay, because I got the sergeants and lieutenants and the captains to sign them, so that's all that mattered. And they used to ask me, why do you want these chronos? You're not a lifer. I said, because when I go home, I'm going to see my son. And so what happened is, when I came home, I started trying to see my son and got denied. I got denied four times. As a matter of fact, the last time they told me, don't even try again until like 2012 because of my record, which of course I ignored. And I was approved July 20th, 2011. <laughs> so back to solitary confinement as my son gets out of solitary. Um, Something really strange began to happen. Uh, I became part of the inmate family council and I met the warden at Salinas Valley and he agreed to give the inmate family council a tour. So, of course, when we got on the yard, he said, now I'm not going to take you where your loved ones are at. And I said, now you're wrong right there. You know, you need to take us where our loved ones at to show transparency and that you have nothing to hide. He said, oh, I could see you're manipulating me. I said, no, I'm not. I know what I'm talking about. I've been inside. And so he did. He took us. My son had no idea. And he took us, and we're inside the unit where my son's pot is. We step inside, and I could see my son at the door looking down. And there was a guy on the top tier with a broom. And they're both looking at us. And I tell the warden, that's my son's cell up there. So he goes, come on. And he walked me up to my son's cell with my son in the cell. And my son's looking. And the guy with the broom angel, he knew of me from hearing me on the radio while he was in Pelican Bay Shoe. So by the time I get up the stairs with the warden at that, his face was just white. And he said, Miss Dolores? And like they couldn't believe it. They were in shock. I mean, like whose mom shows up at their cell door, right? <laughs> well, I do believe that. And I did. <laughs> and it was so funny because my son was saying, he goes, you know, mom, when I saw you, I kept telling Angel, I think that's my mom right there. I think that's my mom right there. And so that amazing experience happened. But then I just want to take you really quick to what ended up happening, I got another tour of Pelican Bay. I got a tour of the solitary confinement housing unit, the security housing unit that was um, closed down the short quarter after the hunger strikes and the litigation, the settlement agreement. It was completely empty. So the warden from Pelican Bay prison took me to my son's empty cell. I walked in my son's empty cell. I looked around at the walls. Right away, I remembered the time that Juan Mendez had called me, the UN Rapporteur on Torture, 
And he said, Dolores, I have a list of some men that was some men's names that was given to me by the courts. He said, but I'm going to ask to see your son. He said, he's not on my list, but I'm just going to try asking. And he said, um, I don't know that they'll let me see, the, see him, but just in case. So they ended up letting Juan Des Mendez see my son while he was in solitary confinement. And Juan Mendez walked to my son's security housing unit cell and said, Mr. Martinez, Juan Mendez here on behalf of the United Nations. And when I was in my son's cell, I was trying to imagine because my son from that visit, when I went the following week, his face was glowing. He was so lit up. And he said, Juan Mendez, mom? He said, all the guards, all the staff were giving me extra cookies and milk because they were like, who are you? <laughs> How does your mom send Juan Mendez to your cell door? And then he said, and mom, you should have heard them. It was so funny because they were all telling Juan Mendez, oh yeah, we know her mom. Yeah, <laughs> we come over here. And um, to see what I've endured now, you know, I spent over 20 years of my life always wishing I wasn't in prison. To now, every day, all day, I just love being in prison. And I don't care if it's the men's or women's, you know, gender neutral, this new thing that's going on now. I'll go in any one, I don't care. But, I, and so that's just part of my story. And so thank you so much for letting me share those glimpses with you. from New Orleans, Black Moses. Hey y'all, so before I walk on this stage, I have some names I have to say. First I bring to this room Mama Alma, Jim Dunn, Miss Lanetta, Jim Hayes, Kalamu, and Kwanzaa. Um, those folks are organizers I got to know and what has become this real cool 10-year journey. Um, yeah, 10 years. So I've, and I also come to tell this story also about the impact of this thing that sometimes feels sad, but it's a part of life, this thing we know as death. It's strange to live in a city where the, de the dead don't go under the ground. We kind of live with them. I go to church right next to them every day. So you have a different relationship in what it means that someone's life and how it impacts yours post, post the time they're there with you. So when they say, well, you have, we have the opportunity to talk about transitions and transformations. Well, one, most of you met me a year ago, and my name was Derek Anthony, St. Moses the Black, Goodman Rankins, Jr. Um, that's who I've been. That's my legal and Catholic church name. If you went into the Roman Catholic Church, they would say, St. Moses the Black, how have you been? Um, a year from now, I've gotten this cool fellowship thing, and this is like this thing, right? This thing that's huge and big and still don't all know what to do with it in a sense of how it moves life forward, but it's there and it's this thing. So. So we start. Ten years ago, I was, uh, 
I was in high school, I was at the North Charlotte Science Man High School, greatest high school. It was a charter school, but it worked for me, y'all. I'm sorry, I love my charter, fuck that. My charter was good to me, bullshit, I'm sorry. But I would take down any other charter because I know they ain't shit. But my parents were some shit. They made me, for God's sake, come on now, look. So, so my high school principal says to me, she says, Derek, look, I know you got some summer things going on. I need you and I want you to go on this trip with this woman, Dr. Kimberly Richards. Didn't know what the hell I was doing. And she was like, she's gonna come and she's gonna meet and we're gonna talk. I'm like, okay, cool. Went to the meeting, bam. Fell in love. I was like, okay, I'm getting on the bus. Got on the bus and I met my people, y'all. Like, I met the people who like thought the shit that you thought when you watched the news that day and nobody else in the house agreed with you at all. I was like, oh, wait, the mayor does suck. Okay, great, woo! I was really excited, I was so excited, right? So I went on this trip, but I didn't really know what I was doing. Went to Atlanta, fell in love. And when I got back on the bus at the end of the day, I felt like I was home and I never wanted to leave. And I joined the Greater New Orleans Organizers Roundtable, which is a family that produced a young man that we don't talk about black men that come out productive, who come from healthy families or come from a community or with the people who say it takes a village to raise a child. My family broke apart, literally, divorce-wise, when the round table met me. And so when my dad and my mom, and they had, they had to do their thing, they had to become new people outside of the family house. This group of organizers from across the Gulf South, from as far as Florida, as close to Texas, adopted me. And they raised me through college. And I couldn't be here today without that like those people. And I met, we met every, every second Saturday month, four o'clock, there would be a coconut cake. Brother Rob would ask my mama Monique, where my beans at? And you know the meeting has started. So anyway, to fast forward. So throughout this process, and I was doing organizing, all these things happened, but right at the end of these 10 years, in these past really four or five, these, that came to be my friend became my friend and I lost some people who taught me lessons that got me to be this, this black Moses. I was interested, somebody else introduced me and it was like, yeah, he's a healer. And I'm like, oh, I'm a healer, yeah, that's my <laughs> shit, okay, cool. So I'm gonna take you on a journey of how we get here. The first one is Nanny Velma. So the first thing first, if you think you've had the best cake in town, you have not had the best cake in town. Nanny Velma was the cake baker. She would bake every birthday cake you never had to ask. She knew everybody's birthday before anybody else could think about it. She knew your birthday because she was baking your cake. And what would come with that cake, and baking cakes was her way of getting people in loving and knowing folks. But she was the spiritual nexus of my family. She's my original priestess. She had this old school TV that, um, it was back when the TVs had legs and it would be stuck in there and you got the little module thing, you got the antenna. I don't know what y'all call those, but it was one of those TVs y'all play with. And so even up till the storm, it was black and white. The TV would just spin, you know, just do the spinning thing. And what she would do is she would take people pictures who she was praying for and put them along the TV. And that TV never left EWTN, the Catholic National Channel. And, you, and you'd be like, that don't work. It ain't gonna work at all. It works. <laughs> my cousin was in jail, 
He had done himself, he got himself in some trouble. And she said, oh, he gonna be home tonight. He was like, what the hell is this old woman talking about? She took his picture, she put it on that TV. She said, our father, Hail Mary, and the glory be, and next phone call she got, he was on his way home. I don't, you know what I mean? I was in peace with that. I don't need no more explanation when it worked like that. You know, so, but I lost her. Actually, I wrote the dates. I need the dates, y'all. Help me out. So I lost Manny like in 2013. Um, and that's when I was also the, when her, at her funeral was the first time my family saw me step publicly into Catholic ministry. And the bishop accepted my work. And the bishop said, your time has come, my son, for you to figure where you ought to be in this place and in this church. So then time goes on, kicking and chilling. I'm doing organizing, I'm doing this. Youth organizing, people say, youth agenda is popping. College is going great. I was, man, I was popping. It was going great. But there was a day in class, African development class, went there, was visiting. He was there, and he was about to play a game. In college, at Tulane University, they do not play games, y'all. I was too excited for this class. I was like, this is about to be lit. We playing a game about time, because I didn't read the book, so it's working. Yes, I got this. But then I got a text message that said emergency. And one of the things that happened in New Orleans and organizing, emergency can mean many things. It can mean from they putting us out of our house in this moment to all kind of things. What it was, it was the first death of a young person I care a lot about. His name is George Carter. You may have heard about him. Melissa Harris Perry did a special kick to him. This young man was the third generation of a group of family that I actually got to mentor. I mentored his older brother who mentored his other brother, I mentored him, and his sister as well. And George um, was a real loving child, he was, but he would love you in a way that love could not be loved. You, you know what I mean? Like you didn't think it was real. We also did work on a Mojo committee together, and he would say, uh-oh, it's that time of the year, it's time to celebrate me. Because with Mojo, we host a, celebration of the African-American child. And it's like, that's my holiday, because y'all came to celebrate me. <laughs> so he would come and sell drinks for us, because that was his day. And so George was actually on his way to school when he had stopped at a corner store, and he was shot. And they took his body and they threw him in a field. He was on his way to school. He wasn't doing what black men apparently do. He wasn't selling drugs. He was, you know, he was going to school, right? This, this made me come to organizing in a new way. It was like, wait, we got to rethink this piece. Because he was, he was the good kid. He was the one who did the organizing on a Saturday and handled the business and was canvassing and knew his neighborhood, but still was shot. Something about this game has changed. Also, at the same time, the day that he, the day that he passed, my friends, for the first time, looked at me and said, Derek, what do we do? And I, for the first time, didn't have my nanny van. I'm like, oh, I'm going to send a picture to the nanny van. Well, she's going to take care of it. No, it didn't work like that. So I said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go ahead and pray. So that night, we sent out the text about 2. I would say about 7 o'clock, I had 40 young people in front of my door ready to pray and literally walk to the spot where his brother's life was taken. So it, it, the story continues. The next one. Oh, now see, that's Sandra. 
See, Sandra, that's my grandma. That's my grandmother. My grandmother raised four beautiful black women who are my aunts and my mothers. She was in and out of prison. She was a crackhead for about 20 of those years. And so the stories that come with that side of the family are heavy. They're hard. And so I was, had a kind of grudge with my grandma for a long time when I was a kid. Because I never understood, how could you let this happen? What the hell? Because nobody could get along, can't have Christmas dinner. It was bullshit. I knew what was going on. But so I was still doing organizing and still doing the work. But one day I got a call and they said my girl was going home. She was a diabetic, so at this point they had chopped as many legs, parts they could take off. And that was a debt that was different because my grandmother knew I had potential. We just didn't know what it was for. We knew Derek leads stuff, Derek is loud, Derek likes to dance, but we don't know what it was. And so me and her would talk. In the latter part of her life, one of the things we did and we would talk about the most would be how I call to tell you about how good God has been to me. And we would call it be random stuff, you know, like my medicine came on time, or um, the doctors told me I don't need another shot, or the bus came on time. And I would come up with similar radical things about organizing in life. She was the first person, actually, to ever admit to seeing me as an organizer when I came out to my family. Yeah, and my family coming out includes organizing because. <laughs> I was going to be a priest, and it was a teacher. There was some moments. And then when I was like, look, y'all, I like working with community, and I like working with poor people. And they was just like, little boy, we did not do all this. But I'm like, look. But grandma was cool with it. And so when I lost my gramps, I stepped into leadership of my family, which was this new ministry, but still this thing that I had to step into and hold, also while holding my organizing and still going to school, and like paying for the house. And my grandma taught me about organizing. She taught me how to organize really just by sitting down and talking. Because at first, my organizing before, it was all kind of do-do-do-do in the front, doing that little thing, you know, hey, I'm important, that stuff, that phase we go through. And then I get to the phase where now I just go, how you doing? What's going on? I never could cook before my grandma passed away. Now I have parties at my house every other day, barbecue and cooking food, and I'm still organizing people. And people are talking about things and things that happen in the news. Or it's this thing. And I was like, oh, wait, I am still doing this organizing thing. OK, cool. So years go on. And then the final blow came. The final blow came. At this point, I know that I am a social justice fellow. I know that I am graduating from Tulane University. I know that I'm at a place where I'm stepping into what I would like to call my manhood in a way that I'm able to say to the world that I'm going to define it for me and how I want to do it. And part of being a man for me is making sure that my community is with me and going with me where I'm going. So my project, when Trump came in, I was like, I'm done fighting. I'm ready to build. So I decided to build black communities and black men who were ready to go deal with community, right? So all this is happening, going on. And then I was actually, I'm an altar server for the church as well. 
So I was wearing my altar robe, and I was getting ready for a, a funeral. And it was kind of during a funeral marathon. Every now and then, 20 people would die in a Catholic church, and you go 10, 11, 12, 1. 10, 11, 12, 1. It's called a funeral marathon. It happens. And so we do that. And that was in the middle of one. And I got a phone call from someone very important to me at the time. So I took the call immediately, even though I was preparing to go into ministry. And they said, Mary's had a brain aneurysm. And she's passed away. She was in school. She was a sophomore, a junior. Oh, no, sophomore. She had found a partner that cared about her. She was a hellified organizer. When I meant she was a young person who pulled together 30 people and put them on a bus in the city of New Orleans when school systems can't do it their damn selves. She did that shit. Mary was the organizer in a way. When they say there's a black man, there's a black woman behind every black man, when it comes to organizing, Mary was the one who taught me about what it meant to be on time. I've always woken up early at 5 in the morning. Mary told me that we do work at 5 in the morning. And she would call because she was on the bus on the way to school. So then when this happens and I get to a place and accept that Mary is gone, I realized that systems and institutions have killed four people in my life. They didn't die from natural causes. They died from some type of disease, some type of lack thereof, or some situation, therefore, in front of. So this thing that I come to fall in relationship with and saying yes to on the bus known as organizing, that I saw community, give community life and grow. I got to see my, I see my family members leaving. I have all this great good stuff going on. And then the fellowship comes, and I'm in it, and I realize that these four people, one, have given me the gifts that I could become a black Moses. That this fellowship gives me the opportunity to take my love, who is organizing, and move her from the thing I do when I'm not in school to my full-time commitment and vocation for life. And I got that at a time, I received that from four people in the midst of their time of transition. And I love them all. And when Kevin called and he said, you got it, I was, those people came to mind. Because I, I, y'all, when I went and checked the bank account the other day, I was like, Grandma, look how good God's been to me. <laughs> I looked and I just was like, ooh, I couldn't. I... <laughs> and, and it's all from a black boy from the Night War who they say went to bad schools that you could close from a neighborhood that was washawayable. From people who they said, you know, don't have the education or the money all the food. 10 years after saying yes to getting on a bus, I'm here. And Black Moses is here.
from Liberty City, Miami, Florida, Valencia Gunder. I'm so happy you said Liberty City, because I'm not from South Beach, the other side of the bridge, where we don't have no palm trees. No trees at all, to be exact. Um, so I'm Valencia. Everybody calls me V. And you know, I always wonder, like, who the fuck be dealing these cards? Like, real talk, like, I go back, and I know people talk about the crack cocaine era and everything, but I grew up in the city where the cocaine, cocaine cowboys called home. So crack cocaine hit Miami in a whole nother space, right? And some of my first memories growing up, I don't even remember my parents. Like, Grandma was just always there, right? You wake up, Grandma. Go to sleep, Grandma. You need something, call Grandma. And I'm 33. And if I need something, I still call grandma. And I always think back like, well, damn, what I did for this hand? You know, I'm looking at other people, and I'm like, they got their parents in their life. Even if their parents was on drugs, their parents were still present. And I didn't find out till years later, my grandma told my parents, like, don't come back till you get your shit together, okay? And I appreciate her for that now, but I didn't understand as a child. And I think about, you know, the evolution of the crack babies, right? Nobody likes to talk about them. Hashtag millennials, that's us, right? And I just, you know, think about my childhood a lot and how, you know, me and my siblings were criminalized because of what my parents were doing. And a lot of people don't like to talk about it. Right? So the school system, because you know the war on drugs was just a thing to do, but throw that whole shit in the trash, right? Because we knew that was a mess, right? In the school system, they used to do these things like these like drug programs in the schools with the kids whose parents were on drugs. And it was the most dumbest shit I ever experienced. <laughs> and it was like you were in jail, but you were in school, right? So the school and prison pipeline was happening right there. So I remember they, you know, come to the door, Valencia Gunder and such and such name and such and such name, you all come to the front of the class. And it was like this walk of shame down the hallway because everybody knew we was the crack babies and we had to go to the auditorium or to the library, right? To sit in the room, to watch this old white man, to tell us to not be like our parents because they on drugs. And then we go back into the classroom for everybody to pick on us like you a crack baby. And I'm just like, how helpful was that shit? <laughs> right? Because you know, you're already fucked up because your mama and your daddy out there doing things. And where I grew up in Liberty City, my elementary school sat right there on the, in the red light district. So I can see all the mess that was going on. And it was at one point, the principal had to like change where we had recess because you could be like playing outside, kicking the ball and see your mama. Yeah, it was that serious. So, you know, it was a lot of things that was happening to us as children where we were being exposed to this life of drugs, even though we weren't using the drugs. And I always thought that was like extremely unfair. Like, 
but I ain't do nothing. Why am I being punished too? So, you know, the mandatory sometimes classes on Saturdays that we had to attend because my mom and dad ended up going to prison for drugs when I was a child. And I remember times where my mom wanted us and she would come lock all five of us up in the bathroom because she just wanted to have her babies. And the police would come kick the door in and snatch us out of our arms. And then these same motherfuckers show up to our house on Christmas Eve with gifts. Really? Or the same dude who was like selling my mama all this crack cocaine wanna help us buy school clothes. That could keep all that shit. Cause what they was doing was taking my life and passing me material things thinking that it was gonna replace it. So over years, you know, the blows kept hitting me over and over again. And surprisingly, y'all may think this a lie, I wasn't a talker when I was a child. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't a talker. I wasn't a talker. I was um, very, very shy as a child. And I would, you know, just go off to myself, even though I grew up in the hood. And Miami does have a hood, if you ain't never been down there before. And... I start playing my instrument. I, I start playing the flute in the fifth grade. And my favorite genre of music is classical, I know, right? Not Big Mouth Valencia. Still to this day, I play. And um, I would, um, my grandma wouldn't let me play my flute in the house. She was like, I don't want to hear that mess. Get out of my house with it. Even though she brought the flute. <laughs> so I would go outside on the corner, and then the people on the block like, we don't want to hear that mess. And what was so crazy, the biggest drug dealer on the block was like, you could come sit over here and play, and nobody ain't gonna say nothing to you. <laughs> so <laughs> I remember playing my flute in the dope hole, like, this where I gotta practice, and this where we gonna be at, and oh well. And he, he was the one who told me, like, this, this flute gonna get you out of Liberty City, and I got me a scholarship to FAMU, right? <laughs> So, you know, even though I was always having these, like, small trials, right, my parents wasn't in my life, and I mean, my mama tried many times. My daddy got clean when I was 12, you know, and I'm really, really proud of him. I'm proud of both of my parents. Both of my parents are clean right now. So high five to them. Um, and, but when I got to school, when I got to college, I was struggling, right? Because my dad had got clean at a certain time, and um, they deemed me as his child. I'm the youngest of his children. I'm the middle child of five children. And they wouldn't give me financial aid because he made a certain amount of money, but he wasn't taking care of me because, you know, to them it's a lot of money, but in real life, y'all know that don't be enough money to pay for no tuition. So I struggled through school, taking semesters off because I only got a partial scholarship going back to school, doing what I had to do or whatnot, and I did what I had to do to get through college. We're going to leave that for the imagination. And um, I, I struggled through or whatnot. It took me six years or whatever, not because I was stupid, but because I had to go grind that thing out. And my um, dean called me in the office one day and was like, Valencia, you made it. And he was like, you got three more classes. So I didn't know where I was going to get this money from. 
But I came up to FAMU with this check, and I was like, we're going to do this thing, baby. The check bounced like a basketball. <laughs> but <laughs> FAMU was really behind on technology. So <laughs> I, end up <laughs> I end up finishing. And, um, but I didn't walk across the stage, right? Because I was just so over it. Like, why do I have to? Like, grind is hard. Like, who the fuck dealt these cards? Like, why do I have to go through this over and over again? Over and over again. Then, finishing school, I had a halfway decent job. Lost that because, you know, they want to fire people. Well, not fire, lay off, I guess. But that's the lie they told me. And I ended up homeless for a short while. And I'm like, dog. Fuck is still in the cards. Like, why am I here? Right? So, um, giving in, I moved back home to Miami. I was in Tallahassee at FAMU, moved back home to Miami with two boxes and a suitcase, right? And sleeping on my sister's floor and everything, I was like, I'm gonna use this international business degree. <laughs> so I went and found this nice corporate job at the SunPass, that's the um toll. And um they gave me the job and everything, and I'm all excited. Got me a little cubicle, thinking I'm doing all this work. <laughs> there are three weeks, leave work that day, went to Publix, and I get pulled over. So the officer, being fair, he wasn't nasty. He asked me for license and registration. So I'm like, okay, here you go. Because I'm working for SunPass. So, you know, they checked my driver record. They checked everything just three weeks ago. He come back to the car, Ms. Gundy, you have a fugitive warrant for you in Lehigh County. You need to go run that again. Not this Ms. Gunda. He was like, no, I'm telling you. So immediately, I'm like, I just got a good job. I just finished being homeless. Like, I'm just building my life back. And he was like, I want to let you go, but they got a hold on you. I got to take you in. So I'm like, oh, goodness. So there goes my job, because I don't know when I'm going home. So they take me into the county jail or whatnot, and that's the most disgusting place ever on earth. Um, since then, they've closed that facility. Thank goodness, because nobody shouldn't even be breathing next to that building, let alone be put inside of it. Um, I was there for just a few hours, then they took me over to TGK, which is another jail, and then bounced me to the Women's Detention Center. And, you know, you hear the stories about women in jail or just how jails are in general, and it kind of make you nervous or whatever. But surprisingly to me, all the women were very caring, right? I went in there. They, like, protected me. And, you know, everybody know what you went to jail for when you get in there. So they was calling me fam you in the jail because <laughs> the check that had bounced, the state of Florida had came after me for this tuition check. And in the state of Florida, any check over the $500, that's a felony. So I, I'm in the jail, and then my mom come visits me in the jail, and she's like, you better not cry. You don't do this, and you don't do that. And I'm like, Mom, I'm coming home. And then I didn't come home. And I, um, they ended up having to extradite me to Leon County. But it was like this horror story for me. Um, going through this process, right? I've never been to prison. 
to be completely fair, but this process through jail and extraditing me up to Leon County was just horrid. Um, they took me to the next county. I didn't know they bounced you to county, to county, to county, till they get you there. I thought they was gonna just put me in a van in Miami and take me right up to Leon County. No, not at all. So my grandmother had paid this check off, like she paid everything off before I even got to Broward County. They still didn't want to release me. And I'm in Broward County and I'm there for a week, Broward Sheriff's Office in. They wouldn't give me a pad. So I sat in this jail in my blood for five days. And I'm like, who the fuck dealt these cards? Why am I sitting in my blood in a jail? Like, I ain't even worth a pad. So I had these two strand tilts in my hair, and I threw my hair over my face because I was embarrassed. Like, I'm a grown woman in this light blue uniform with this mess on me. So they took me to another jail in Broward, Paul Ryan. They cleaned me up, gave me what I needed because it was a female facility. I was there for two days, took me back to BSO, put me back in a holding cell, wouldn't give me a pad, three days. Put me in the back of a van in the middle of the night, because you know that's how they transport you. And they put me in the back of a van with six men, nothing separating us. And as soon as I got in the van, the man said, we got something for her. So I'm like, I'm about to get raped in the back of this van while I'm sitting in my blood for a check to finish school. So immediately I'm like, okay, just let me brace myself. I could fight a little bit, but I'm sh shackled. It's six of them, it's one of me. And I'm finna just get my ass beat. I'm gonna get raped and ain't shit I could do about it. And apparently the guards didn't care because they put me back there. So I guess it's God or Allah or the ancestors or whoever y'all pray to was looking over me and a lamp post, like the light hit my face, and one of the guys remembered me from Liberty City. And he called me by my nickname. He was like, Danny. And I'm like, yeah. What the hell are you doing in the back of this van? And he was like, y'all boys, y'all ain't getting nothing tonight because it's like little sus, so that's ended. So I was like, thank God. And then he was like, yeah, you know, they throw, throw these women in the back of the vans with us, and we do whatever we want to do. Nobody don't know, and who they going to tell? So I'm like... What the? People go through this all the time. So they took me to Hillsborough County. I was there in the holding cell for um, a day. And they, you know, every time they bounce you from jail to jail, they got to book you, let you out, book you again. So all these mug shots over and over and over again. I'm like, Lord, when the person Google search me, that's what they going to see. So... I guess the Leon County finally, after these days of bouncing around with no pad on, I just want y'all to keep remembering that because women go through that, seriously. I get to Leon County and I'm in the jail and one of my classmates from FAMU actually was standing at the door when they opened it and he was like, wait, call a warden because this is illegal because he saw me so they took pictures of me before they even brought me into the jail. And they brought me and gave me a shower, did what they had to do. And then while I'm sitting in the jail, my, my grandma went and paid for a lawyer because she didn't trust the public defender's office to get me out. 
<laughs> especially in Florida. Y'all know how that works. And I ended up going to court in this judge called Hangum Hankerson. That's what's his name. And when everybody found out that's who my judge was, they was like, you'll be back here. You ain't going home. And for this one check, my first offense, no BS, this man told me a year, six months. And I told my lawyer to kiss my ass. I ain't taking it. So we went back. And, with, and so I had to sit another two weeks. But in that two weeks, that same judge, it was this whole federal investigation came out that he was purposely over-sentencing black students in Leon County. So I was moved off of his thing. He was taken off the bench and everything. Charges was brought against him. In the DA, they was working together to do this thing. And it's so crazy, as I work with um, formerly incarcerated people who court charges in Leon County, all of them was like, my judge was Hangum Hankerson. Hangum Hankerson. I'm like, bruh, for years. I mean, people who went to jail or prison 10, 20 years before me. So this man was on the bench harassing people and abusing his power and over-sentencing people for the smallest things, right? So they end up, um, I got a new judge. And the judge, first of all, was pissed off because she was like, this is her first charge. Why is she even in my court? And so they gave me 30 days, which was now time served because I was in there more than 30 days. And then they gave me a year probation. But then in Florida, once you become a felon, that's it for the rest of your life, right? So you, can, you don't have any of your rights, all of these things forever, forever, ever, ever, ever. And I left there, and even though I was in the mess when I was walking out of that jail, I was like, I ain't being quiet no more. I'm cutting this hair off, and I'm going to start speaking up. Because I'm like, I'm just too quiet and I see all the mess that's going on, right? And I was like, maybe I got dealt these cards to live through this to help other people. So I went and I left the jail or whatnot. They wouldn't even, they lost my clothes from Miami. So they trying to talk about, we can't let you out with a uniform. I was like, I walked got this bitch naked. You can have all this shit. Let me out this motherfucker now. <laughs> I'm ready to go. <laughs> I don't need these flip-flops, this white-ass bra, or these ugly-ass panties. Take it. <laughs> so my brother had clothes on the other side, and he ended up, they ended up letting him give them the clothes through the window, which they weren't supposed to do, but they did it for me. And they let me out of the jail. And then I went back, and they told me I was doing this little BS mail-in probation or whatnot in Leon County, because I was like, I'm going back to Miami. I'm not staying in Leon County another moment. So I get home and I'm working and doing things and I was just so ashamed to tell people that I had went through this experience. So actually this is my first time publicly ever telling this story. So from 2010 until just 2015, I met a young man from Jacksonville and he was the first person I ever met who was just like, I served nine years in prison. Da, 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 da. He was just like speaking like he had overcame this thing. And I'm like, he served nine years. And I'm crabbing about these little 30 days. Like I could tell people about myself and be okay with it, right? So he helped me get to the space where I can, you know, speak and help out other individuals who may went through worse things that I did, you know. And 
I sit up there and I think about all the things that I, I went through from my parents being on drugs, for me being homeless, for me going to jail, for me having to ride in a van, almost getting raped and going through all this stuff. And I think about how I got to where I am, right? So I consider myself like the perfect storm, like I'm every statistic, right? Every statistic, literally, from being raped, from going to jail, being now um, at, well, ex-felon. I know we're working on terminology, Topeka. Don't beat me up. <laughs> and, <laughs> and um, you know, being everything that they tell, you know, society tells you not to be, right? That's just how my car were dealt to me, right? And I played a hell of a hand. A hell of a hand. My, my grandma, I get all these awards and accolades and stuff in Miami because everybody love on me or whatever. And I don't keep any awards at my house. I send everything to my grandma's house. And my grandma and my mom live together. My mom been clean for five years. High five to her. And she, and they like, they make this mural of awards of me, whatever. And I got accepted into a program at Harvard University and my grandma just was like, I'm gonna call all my church friends and brag about you and all this good stuff. But what was so amazing, what happened, and I was, you know, was always so ashamed of like what my parents were because that's what made me, is that my cousins them started this hashtag with like Beverly and Dexter daughter. Beverly and Dexter daughter. And I was just like, you know, at first I'm like, why would they? And I was like, you know what, this is very uplifting to my parents who, you know, went through so much to, um, you know, have to give up their parental rights so that I could be raised in, uh, you know, a solid foundation and things of that nature. But I always ask myself, who the fuck dealing the cars? Like, whoever you are, seriously, like, you got like a really wicked mind <laughs> to give a child out of the womb all this stuff that's messed up and expect them to sort the shit out, right? Like, if you play spades, right, I had no spades, no face cars, <laughs> and still ran to Boston. You feel me? <laughs> so, you know, and, and still even in my activism, I'm, I'm doing all this work, and people call me to do all type of activism, from climate to gun violence to everything, right? And then one thing, you know, I was so afraid to criminalize the community, so when it came to gun violence, I was always quiet about it, right? You know, I'd be like, dang, it's messed up, but I would never speak publicly on it or whatnot until August 28, 2016, right? get a phone call, and my career in activism and organizing is taking off. I'm being called around the country to speak, and I get this phone call one Sunday, and they like, you need to rush to the trauma center. And my goddaughter, eight years old, got shot in the head with AK-47. And immediately, I'm second guessing everything. Like, fuck all these awards. Forget speaking everywhere. And I'm second guessing everything's like, does black lives matter? To whom do they matter? And I'm asking myself these questions every day, every day. And you know, my family, y'all know, 
A lot of people, if you ain't grow up in a black community, black people can be extremely conservative, even though they be registered Democrats. That's another conversation for another time. <laughs> and, you know, immediately they want me to choose. Because just three weeks before that, I'm shutting down the whole North Miami going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the chief of police for Charles Kinsey. Right? So within three weeks, I went from toe-to-toe -to -toe with the police to having to plan a funeral for my goddaughter in the same month. And then you got this tug of war go on, right, in our community. Are you against police violence or are you against gun violence? Like, why the fuck do I have to choose? Why do I have to choose? And for the longest time ever, people were asking me to choose. Like, which one you gonna fight on? Which one you gonna fight on? And the day before my goddaughter's funeral, I, well, a few days, like the day or two before she was shot, I got an email to apply for the fellowship. And I was like, you know, this is a national thing. I'm a little child from Miami. Nobody gonna look at this application. So I tossed it to the side, being honest. And then my frustration, and then my grief, the night before the funeral, I filled out the letter of intent. And I was like, you know what? If they ain't going to give it to me, they're not going to give it to me. But I'm going to share my story anyway. And I did it. And I got to the next round. And then I wrote the full proposal. And I mean, everybody who was helping me was like, V, these people are not going to fund this. Like, you're tripping. You're tripping. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to stand in my truth wherever I am. Right? And I'm standing up here now. Like the whole Miami was surprised. And last week, I went to my goddaughter's, um, to the cemetery to see her. And I cut my locks off. I used to have really long locks. And I cut my locks off because when her heart stopped, my head was on her chest. So I cut my hair off in her memory, and I went out there to finally take my locks to the cemetery and bury them with her. And I told her, I was like, I'm going to get these motherfuckers hell for you. And I killed the wrong baby. And I killed the wrong baby. And I say, those was your cards, and you played them. But I still got a full hand, and they going to fucking see me. Thank you. Live Law Detroit, Transitions and Transformations, was held at this year's meeting of the Soros Justice Fellows in Detroit. We'd like to thank Adam Colbreth, Program Officer of the Soros Justice Fellowship, for hosting, and Christina Voigt, Program Coordinator, for making the night of storytelling possible. A very special thanks to each of the storytellers. Dolores Canales, Black Moses, a.k.a. Derek Rankins, Valencia Gunder, Malcolm Young, Set Hernandez Ronquillo, Bella Baz, and Kung Lee. You can hear all seven stories presented at Live Law Detroit by going to our website, lifeofthelaw.org. Our senior producer was Tony Gannon.
Our post-production editors were Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel and Rachel Kane. Music was composed by Ian Koss. Howard Gelman at KQED Radio in San Francisco was our engineer. And take note, if you're interested in applying for a Soros Justice Fellowship, now is the time. Each year, the Soros Justice Fellowships annually funds 13 to 15 outstanding individuals to undertake projects that advance reform, spur debate, and catalyze change on a range of issues facing the U.S. criminal justice system. Beginning October 2nd, the Soros Justice Fellowships Fund will begin accepting applications for the 2018 Soros Fellowships in three categories, Advocacy Fellowships, Media Fellowships, and Youth Activist Fellowships. The deadline is December 6th. For more information about applying for a Soros Justice Fellowship, visit the Open Society Foundation's Soros Justice Fellowships. You can find the link in our newsletter and on our website. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, public radio exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, and the National Science Foundation. But that only tells half the story. Life of the Law is dependent on your support to keep our project in production and bring you these tremendous stories about the law in all our lives. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct costs of producing each and every episode. Next on Life of the Law. It says anyone who was who entered the country before they were 16 and now are less than 31 years of age. And they have either gone to high school or are GED pro, or are pursuing college or military service, that they are eligible to apply for the DACA program. That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. Thank you.